If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 4 this morning. Where we'll pick up the word of the Lord as we go through the Gospel of John, as we have been for the past uh, month or two. One of the statistics that, that we've quoted frequently, we've talked about often, is, is the, um, with regards to the evangelical church. And it's a pretty sad statistic, actually. This idea that in the course of their life, the, the person who, of all the people who claim to be evangelical Christians, roughly uh, 95% of them will never actively share their faith and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with another person. Say that again. And that should be a horrifying statistic. The evangelical church, 95% of the people that are sitting in the evangelical church this morning will never tell another person in their life how to be saved through Jesus Christ. That needs to be unacceptable. It needs to change. And the mission of Christ was to come and seek and save the lost, of which we're going to talk about today. The mission of Christ was not behavior modification. The mission of Christ was not to win elections. The mission of Christ was not to set America aside as a city on a hill. The mission of Christ was to seek and save individuals who are ready and willing to repent and give their life to Him in order that they would not receive the punishment that they're due, which is eternal hell, but that they would receive eternal life through the righteousness of Him. That's our, our mission, church. There's a lot of people that I know you care about. There's a lot of people that I care about. I can list them off. Neighbors and siblings. Babysitters and teachers, co-workers, cousins, spouses. These are people that at this very moment, should their life end, they would have no hope of forgiveness and eternal life in Christ. And as joyous as it is to come together on Sunday morning, as, as, as meaningful as it is to listen to the Word of God, the greatest thing we do is to share the Gospel with another person. So as we come to John chapter 4, we see the transition going from the ministry of John the Baptist. We talked about that last week. The, this idea of Old Testament law, the idea of repenting of, of uh, that which we've done that is breaking the law to this mission of grace and baptism in grace and forgiveness that comes in Christ. And remember in John chapter 3, we had the, the visit from the Pharisee, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus in the middle of the night, you know, hardcore, staunch, religious fellow, steeped in the law, steeped in the knowledge of the Old Testament, in the, in the Torah. And he comes to Jesus and he begins to question him. And, and Jesus talks about the fact that these are things that are, are spiritually revealed to you. The Holy Spirit teaches these things. You have to be born again. And we're going to contrast that with a different sort of person that Jesus confronts today. So let's pick up here in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to break this story apart into some chunks today. So let's read the first nine verses to start. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings 
with Samaritans. Here's what I want to get at today as we pull this story apart. We'll begin to see that Jesus confronts this woman for the purpose of moving her towards eternal life. That's all of our job. Our job is to confront people, build relationships, confront people, speak truth for the purpose of moving them from death to life, right? Right? Yes. You don't exist for any other reason than that. The only reason God has left you here is to do that work. So, Jesus sets an example for us here as He meets this woman by this well. And what we begin to see are some markers, some evidences, some things that Jesus is doing that show this movement from death to life. I'm going to give those to you today because as you speak truth to other people, as I confront people outside of this church building, which is, you know, when we're the church scattered and we're really doing the hard work of gospel ministry, what should we be looking for with regard to moving people from death to life? And the first thing that we see here is this. It's important for all of us to live a life of engagement and not avoidance. It's simple to avoid. How many of you have heard this, this phrase? Uh, my mom, you know, as wrong as it was, she said this to me all the time growing up. There's two things that you just don't talk about with people. Politics and, yeah, sure, well, we, we seem to have gotten past the religion one, or the politics one pretty well, right? I mean, I've, I've been unfriended by many people <laughs> on Facebook. Uh, so, but what happened to the religion thing? If, if it, it seems like maybe the opposite would be better. If we got a little more animated and serious about speaking about Christ, instead of worrying so much about changing somebody's politics. So, the truth of the matter is, as easy as it is as a Christian to put on the name and then live a life of avoidance, it's sinful to do just that. We must engage people and not avoid them for the purpose of telling them that they need Christ. Please notice the phrase here that was used. It's very important. It would make no sense for it to be here unless it meant exactly this. He said, John said about Jesus, he had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. He didn't have to, except for one reason. See, everybody who was a Jew, when they went from Jerusalem to the north country in Galilee, they the easiest route, the most direct route, was through Samaria. No Jew went that way. You would actually go down the steep, treacherous road that Jesus talks about in the parable of the Good Samaritan coming out of Jerusalem past Bethany, down to towards Jericho, near the Dead Sea, where you would then travel up uh, you would cross the Jordan River and you would go up through the region of Perea, which was made up of Gentiles, which is today modern-day Jordan, and you would go up that way and then cross back over the, the Jordan River or the Sea of Galilee to get into the region of Galilee. You would go that far out of the way rather than take the direct route through Samaria. So why would the writer say he had to go through Samaria when nobody had to go through Samaria? They had made it abundantly clear that they preferred not to go through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans that much. If anything, centuries of history show us that Jews moving to and from Jerusalem to the north had other routes rather than having to go through Samaria. It was called Samaritan avoidance. We have that today. We call it uh, homosexual avoidance. right? We call it unchurched avoidance. We call it uh, divorcee avoidance. We call it any particular sin that you want to pick. We say that we avoid those people so that we don't get caught up in their lifestyle and in turn they never hear about Christ. When in reality, each one of us was caught up in sin and somebody chose to step out of their comfort zone and engage us in a very uncomfortable conversation to tell us about Christ. So, 
The Samaritans, by Jewish standards, and many of you might know this, they were considered half-breeds. That was an awful phrase, but they didn't have a problem saying it back then. They were half-breed Jews. They wouldn't even use the word Jew. It wasn't even worth referring to them as Jews. They were just half-breeds. They had a corrupt theology according to Orthodox Jews. See, what happened was, during the Diaspora, which was the time hundreds of years earlier when um, the Babylonians came in and they took over uh, and the, the land, what they would do, kings like Nebuchadnezzar uh, and even the kings of the Assyrians, they would take the people who were living in a land and in order to conquer it, they would remove them and send them to another land, and then they would take other people from another land that they conquered, and they would relocate them into your land. And the purpose in doing this, it was very strategic, it totally corrupted and tore down any kind of nationalistic or cultural identity that you had. You no longer belonged to anything. And hence, it weakened you as a human being, and you were quite content just to become a subservient to a Nebuchadnezzar. You were a Babylonian. That was it. You were no longer a Jew. You no longer lived in the Holy Land. It was no longer the land that God gave you. You were now stuck living over here. Now what happened was, as, uh, as the, king, the conquering kings would bring other people in from other parts, other regions, into Samaria, some of the Jews that were left there began to uh, intermarry, and uh, they would raise families, and they would obviously reproduce. And, they, and But what would happen was the theology of the Samaritans that were left got watered down. It was bad Jewish belief, and the, the religion of Judaism became warped under the Samaritans because of this intermingling of cultures. So the Orthodox Jews really despised them. They saw them as sellouts, half-breeds with bad beliefs, and they just hated them. It was an intermingling, you could say, of genetics and an intermingling of religion that sprang forth. Jews didn't allow them to rebuild the temple when they came back into the land, uh, when somebody by the name of uh, Nehemiah came in to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans weren't allowed to be a part of that because they were considered corrupt. So they built their own temple. The Samaritans did. They built it on a mountain called Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria. And they they believed that in places like that and Shechem were the places where they were supposed to worship. These are, are mountains that as this woman talked to Jesus, she could have pointed to these, which I believe she did. But what's interesting is, and this is a point I want to drive home, Jesus wasn't compelled by her theology. Jesus wasn't compelled by geography to avoid this woman. He was compelled by one thing, mission. That's why when that phrase shows up there, he had to go through Samaria. Why? Because it was his mission. He was being obedient to do what God had led him to do. The whole reason Jesus Christ came to earth was to reach Samaritans and Gentiles and Jews. He was compelled by mission. He had to do it. It makes me think of of another affirmative mission statement with regards to us. Because when the new church started in the New Testament, this is what we're told in Acts 1.8. But you, he's talking to the church, this is Jesus talking to us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There is no geography, no political affiliation, no ethnicity, no cultural heritage, no sinful legacy that is left out of that statement. Every single region and person on earth must become our mission for Christ. Because it was His mission. It must be our mission. Which brings me to the second thing here. Out of these first nine verses in this story, 
we learn something else about the markers that lead to eternal life. Not only do we have to live a life of engagement and not avoidance, but it's also important that we see people for who they are. See people for who they are. Let me explain this a bit. This was an audacious statement that Jesus was making by this well. A crazy anti-religion, anti-Judaism, anti-culture, everything statement. I mean, this is this is the this is the old guy from your church that is a a staunch pillar who uh, knows the Bible inside and out and has loved his wife for years, and all of a sudden you're driving down the streets of Harrisburg and you notice that he's sitting in a chair outside a strip club handing tracts and Bibles to people as they come and go. It is that kind of audacious. It's so anti what we become accustomed to as a church. Not only was this woman a Samaritan, which was bad enough, but she was a woman. A rabbi would not engage a female. He wouldn't lower himself that much. She had nothing to offer a rabbi. The the only person that that rabbi should be speaking to is the husband of this woman. So for anyone who tries in our very toxic political climate today, and I've said this before, to try and convince you that Christianity is a religion of, uh, is an anti-feminine, very, uh, what's the right word, like just domineering religion towards women, like that it belittles women and it makes less of women. That's an absolute falsehood. It's a lie. Jesus Christ has shown us just the opposite. That Christ came to uplift and to encourage women and all subservient classes and to give them an identity of value and worth in Him. So He he confronts this woman alone. His disciples are gone. But not only a woman, but this is a woman of known sinful reputation. That's why she's there at noon. It says the sixth hour. So the first hour would have been the first hour of daylight, so roughly six hours would have meant that it was the middle of the day. Nobody would go in this region in the middle, hottest time of the day to go retrieve water out of a well. This is a task that was done in the cooler hours of the day. Early in the morning, you would get your water for the rest of the day. Late in the evening, you would get your water that you need for the evening and for washing activities. Nobody would go at noon and hang out at the well and trek water back and forth, unless you were somebody that nobody else wanted to be around. You're basically a pariah. Nobody wanted to be around this woman, except Jesus. I think we, we must be careful not to prejudge or prioritize certain sins over others thus disqualifying people before they have a chance to be qualified by God. We can't disqualify people before they have the opportunity to even hear the Gospel. A a woman with this size black stain on her life, culturally speaking, was done for. She had no hope, no value, no value, I mean, this woman makes somebody like Elizabeth Taylor look super committed. Save yourself, who's Elizabeth Taylor? The grayer heads in the crowd might know who Elizabeth Taylor is. Let's just say Elizabeth Taylor's been married quite a few times. The way we see people must be equal to the way God sees people. And the way God sees people is loved. The way God sees people is someone who is a potential to be restored and redeemed. In Colossians 2, Paul said, here, meaning in the the love of Christ, in the, the body of Christ, 
There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbithian, Scythian, slave, free, male, female, sinner, justified. It just simply says, but Christ is all and in all. The point Paul is making here is that there is no longer differentiation of anything that we use to differentiate people in Christ. That's to be the beauty of the body of Christ. Right? That there can be people of all different backgrounds and skin colors and histories and difficulties. There can be people that can sit in this room who at this very moment are going through the biggest hurts in their life. There can be somebody who's welcome here who disappointed Jesus yesterday. Because Jesus doesn't hold it over their head anymore. Why should we? Our new identity is found in Him. And as Paul would go on to say in Romans 2, he says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. That's the danger of prejudging somebody before we take the Gospel of Christ to them. We think that they're too far gone. Or we think that they're too attached to their sins. Or we think that they're too militant in their political beliefs. Rather than sharing the Gospel and then making it between them and God. So we're getting at like The role of a Christian is not to be the person who determines whether they can come to hear about the goodness of God, our purpose is to introduce them to the goodness and salvation in Jesus Christ and then let it be, as we say here in Pennsylvania, just let it lie right there. Allow people who have been confronted with the truth of the Gospel then to wrestle it out with God. Between them and God. Because as we see, as affirming as this is with Jesus meeting this woman here at noon, I mean, she's probably like, whoa, what are you doing talking to me? She even expresses that. But the reality is that he doesn't just leave it there. He, he challenges her with the truth of salvation. All people are potential repenters in need of eternal forgiveness. That's why we need to see people. In Second Peter, the Apostle Peter put it this way, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God sees potential in people. Now let's pick up our story here in verse 10. So the Samaritan woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. The woman said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it Himself, as did His sons and His livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. There's a lot going on in this back and forth Jesus is pushing one thing. The woman hasn't quite got it yet. But for us, one thing we can learn here is this. Another marker for us leading to eternal life is this idea of prioritizing the spiritual side of another's life. Prioritize the spiritual side of another's life. This is such a a cool transition that Jesus makes here. He goes from a a cup of water from a well to all of a sudden dealing with the most massive spiritual truths known to all mankind. And he does it with water. He says, he uses a drink of water 
to turn the conversation to living water. And living water was not an innocuous phrase back then. It was a very important phrase. It's significant that he asked for living water because to a Jew, living water is the key. It's the key to this whole entire conversation. The phrase living water was so common among Jews. It means moving water. Jews considered water that had movement, that had life to it as the living water. You wouldn't go to the Dead Sea and scoop out a cup of water and expect to be refreshed. You would go to a spring, or as this was a well that was fed by an underground cistern, it was, a, it was water that had movement. Think about it just from a biological standpoint. You don't want to take a drink out of a puddle, do you? Why do you want to take a drink out of a, a spring or, or water that's moving quickly over rocks? Because it's got freshness to it. It's not something that's going to lead to sickness and death. It's something that's going to refresh you and re-energize you and meet the needs that you have. So Jews would only drink from living water. Even today in northern Galilee, near the border of Lebanon and Syria, in the mountains there, there are these underground springs that just burst forth over, all over the place and they, they, they form gushing waters that eventually are the, they're the headwaters that feed into the, uh, the Sea of Galilee that then becomes the Jordan River. And what's interesting is you can see this movement of living water to, to death in the nation of Israel. Up where the tribe of Dan would have hung out centuries before in those hills, the springs come forward and they bring living water and they feed into the Sea of Galilee where uh, life was sustained. Fish were brought forth and uh, water was drunk and communities formed around this living water and it flowed down the Jordan River southward. And it was in these waters that uh, more fishing would take place and that the, the baptisms, it's no coincidence, the baptisms would take place in the Jordan. It, it symbolized life. But then there's a catch-all at the bottom of the Jordan River and we know it as the Dead Sea. See, things that, things that um, give bring life. The Dead Sea does not give water, it only receives. It only takes. And in the Dead Sea, there is no life. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Even human beings who go into the Dead Sea are only recommended to stay in it for a certain period of time before it begins to have potentially terrible effects on your skin. And if you swallow the water in the Dead Sea, uh, if you drink enough of it, you're supposed to induce vomiting. Because it's like some ridiculous number, exponential number. It's like eight times the amount of salt that you would get out of the ocean. If you have a, a cut on your hand and, and you stick it into the Dead Sea, even just a paper cut, you're going to be tormented for like an hour. It's just that bad. It just takes. It doesn't give. Which is the opposite of Jesus Christ. He's the living water because He gives completely of Himself over and over and over again. So what does this have to do to pointing to the spiritual side of another person's life? Jesus looks at this woman's life and He sees a need for living water. He sees the need for a thirst in her soul. A spiritual thirst. We look at people as, sometimes, I'm so guilty of this, and, and we all do it. We look at people as a political entity, don't we? We look at another person as a uh, malicious, a willfully malicious, sinful individual. We look at them as uh, being strategic in their hatefulness towards God. And if we're being really honest... We'd rather avoid that person than engage them with what they really need, which is spiritual healing. We choose at that moment to be takers and not givers. 
And worse than the person that's caught in their sin and rebellion towards God, in my opinion, is the person that has living water and refuses it to give it to that person. This woman's concern was purely temporal. She was going through life. She was doing her thing, man. I mean, like, she was. this is the equivalent of doing the dishes. She's going to the well in the middle of the day, doing life the best way she knows how. Her main concern here is water for her family, for her. Thirst. And the labor to get the water is what her concern was. And it gets to be that way with us, too. Every human being gets to be that way. We will leave this place and our concerns will quickly shift to the temporal, won't they? Now, oh, what's my work schedule this week? When do I need to be at the office? What meetings do I have? Oh, I'm so tired. I'm just not getting enough sleep at night. Man, I wish I could take a nap. Or we say things like, um, how am I possibly going to handle my children's schedule this week? Or I have uh, th- this discipline problem over here with this child and I just don't know how to deal with this. I have this strained relationship here, and I'm just going to avoid that one. And on and on and on and on. The problems are just temporal, and they're very real. I'm not minimalizing them. I'm just saying that Satan would love to use our temporal issues as a distraction from dealing in the spiritual realities of people who are going to hell. But Christ came to give us so much more than the temporal stuff that we're stuck with. You and I so easily feel like our life exists for what we're going to accomplish this week. It's not true. Our life exists to introduce people to living water. Just to kind of illustrate this point, I want to tell you the story of Witold Glinski. Uh, World War II was just beginning to ramp up. And at this point in time, the Russians were still allies with the Germans. It was 1939, and Witold Golinsky was imprisoned in a Russian-Siberian prison camp. A labor camp. You can just imagine what a Russian-Siberian labor camp would have been like. I mean, if Michelle Day thinks she hates winter, a uh, labor camp in Siberia would have to be absolutely heartbreaking. He was sentenced to 25 years of hard labor, simply, really simply because he was Polish. But with courage, he and about six other guys, in the midst of a very violent blizzard, crawled out of their barracks, dug their way under a fence, and hurried off into the Siberian forest. And they did it in the middle of a blizzard, obviously because it would be more difficult for guards and dogs to follow, but it also means it's more difficult for human beings to survive. But they felt like 25 years hard labor camp, sure death. Uh, Running from dogs and uh, camp officers in a blizzard, there's at least a sliver of a chance that we get away. So with courage, they did that. And his story, Galinsky's story, documents the journey of these six men as they walked 1,600 miles to get to the border with Mongolia. But that's not all. Once they reached the border of Mongolia, all they had to do was make it another 2,400 miles on foot to the Himalayas, where they would cross into India and they would find a British patrol that would rescue them. Galinsky states how the entire trip of 11 months was awful. But he says the most dangerous and brutal time of their trip was when they were crossing the Mongolian desert in the middle of summer. The barrenness of the Gobi Desert was just too much for them. They had no water to drink. So what they began to do was early in the morning and late in the evening, They would find every rock that they could and they would lick the dew off of the rocks. And if one man who was walking noticed that another was perspiring, guess what they did? They would just begin to lick the perspiration off of one another. And it gets worse. They began to find any any way that they could to collect their own urine. 
to get from one minute to the next. You say, well, what is, what's the point of this? I think it gets to be that way with us. We become much the same in life. In our moments of desperation, we choose to seek stagnant, stale forms of instant relief. We'd rather lick perspiration and rocks in the very temporal world that we live in to try and find life rather than seeking Christ and drinking deeply, deep gulps of living water. How nasty the things that we prioritize in our life, thinking that they bring us life. We drink muddied water. We do. The stuff that we choose to prioritize to enhance our life is nothing but muddied water. It's dead water that we hope will bring life. And and it looks like this. You say, if I could just get that job, man, my life will really have purpose and meaning. If I just get that promotion, gosh, then I'm going to feel good about myself. Then I'll have an identity worthwhile identity. If that guy, if that young man would just tell me that he loves me, then I'll be complete. Then I'll have real life if he just tells me that he loves me. If only I could move. If I could move to a different house or I could finally move to that place that I always wanted to live, then my life will be full. If, if, if. And yet, listen to me, Jesus just keeps shouting at the top of his lungs, drink, drink, drink of me. I'm the only living water you've got. Because when the end comes near, and I've been there, maybe you have too, a person on their deathbed, maybe they're hooked up to machines or whatever, and you get to the point where the only water they can take is either from a bag into their arm or some ice chips on their lips. And you know the only water that matters at that point is living water. Jesus Christ. He'll hit it. Jesus will hit it again in chapter 7. But just to draw this point home, I want you to listen to some of the last God's final words in Scripture in Revelation 22, 17. This idea of living water is so important. At the very end, we read, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who has ears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What a good deal. I get the water of life for free. Love that image. The fourth thing we need to do with regard to leading to new life, these markers, I think for us personally, well, let me read the text to you. Let's go back to John 4. Let's look at verse 16 to 18. So she's like, oh yeah, you got water? And like, you got living water? Like water better than this? Hey, would you give me some of that? I could have a drink. I mean, like when I'm thirsty, I'd like to have some of that living water. It's not clicking with her. So now Jesus has to force the issue. And this is what he says. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him. Can you imagine just how her head must have been? Dear, I finally thought I met a friend. In the middle of the day, I thought I met a friend. Somebody who wasn't going to rail on me and hate me for who I am and what I've done. And and Jesus says, go call your husband here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The next thing we need to be about is this, folks. Speak truthfully and deal honestly regarding sin. No sense winning a person to Jesus if they don't know what they've been delivered from. We've got a lot of those people in the church. i got to tell you, 
they don't make much difference for the kingdom. People who have been won to Jesus because they said a prayer or they walked an aisle and they have no idea that they've been saved from eternal damnation because of the sin in their life tend to be people who sit on the sidelines and wave a Jesus, you know, number one foam finger and never really understand what it means to contribute to the kingdom of God because they've never experienced the kingdom of God themselves. So we must speak truthfully and deal honestly regarding sin. This, this woman is still focused on well water. And Jesus is willing to go to her most uncomfortable place. This is why we don't share the gospel, isn't it? If we're being honest, if most of the people in this room are being dead honest, myself included, the main reason I struggle to share the gospel with other people as much as I should is because I need to go to that uncomfortable place. At some point in time, I need to speak to somebody and say, hey, you know what? I'm so sorry to say this. As you chew your fingernails down to the quick, you're saying to yourself, I'm sorry to say this, I'm really sorry to say this, but you're a sinner. God judges sinners. And the way God judges sinners is He sends them to hell. Who wants to hear that? I mean, when you're struggling just to keep up with the daily life and raise a nice family and pay the bills and maybe get your car fixed once in a while and you want to send your kids to college, I mean, who wants that uncomfortable conversation where you sit down with somebody and you say, oh, by the way, your sin in your life, the inherent sin that you can't fix is what's sending you to hell. Because God judges that. Yet Jesus shows us that it must be done. I don't know this. I've heard a lot of people try and preach on what this woman's story is based upon the fact that she has five wives. I I don't think I really need a detailed description or understanding of what her life involved. I, I I get the picture. Maybe she has been divorced five times and now she's living with another guy. Maybe she's a prostitute. I don't know. But she's been with a lot of guys, and clearly it's a sin against God many times over. But the the interesting thing here is five husbands, and God knew it. God knew how deep entrenched sin was in this woman's life. And did he avoid her? Did he ignore her? Did he write her off? No. He confronted her so that he might save her. She'd slept with five different men. The greatest need in a person's life is not water. The greatest need is not food on their table or more income. The greatest need in a person's life is an answer to the condition of sin. And this cannot occur until a person recognizes honestly their own sinful state. And sometimes, oftentimes, that's going to be meaning that you are going to be the message bearer. Sorry to say. But why can you, with authority, tell somebody that they need to be saved from their sin? I'll tell you why. It's my own story. I was a person that hated God. I was an individual that was mired in sin. I was a person that deserved hell until somebody told me about how I can be saved in Jesus Christ. If I keep that to myself, what a wicked person I am. The Bible tells us that the payment for our own sin is death. God's been calling people to repent for all time. God's been calling people to repent and turn to Him since the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 55. The prophet Isaiah wrote this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. And Paul declares to King Agrippa in Acts 26, He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. 
When we go to somebody honestly and we say, you need to repent, all you're saying is recognize that you can't please God because you're a sinner and turn from that and trust in Him for salvation. Now, let's read the joyous rest of the story here. Picking up again in verse 19. This is such a typical response even today. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's now going to, she's confronted with her sins, so her response now is she's going to dumbfound him with her religious knowledge. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. He wasn't afraid to say that, was he? Here's the fifth thing. Point people towards Jesus and not apologetics. This is so significant. People are afraid to share their faith because we feel like we don't know enough about the Bible or that we're going to get dumbfounded by some sort of weird biblical anomaly or we're going to get cold-cocked by some weird Old Testament truth that's just going to floor us and render our, our conversation useless. But I just simply ask this question, is it even possible to reason somebody into heaven? No. You, you can't debate somebody into heaven. You can't do it. I mean, you can be an intelligent, informed uh, sharer of the gospel message. I highly encourage that. I highly encourage you to learn as much of the scripture as you can. Memorize it. Get it into your heart so that when you do talk to people, it just pours out like nobody's business. But the bottom line is, it's God who moves on a person's heart and draws them to himself. Sometimes you are just going to be a talking donkey that God uses to draw people into eternal life. This woman's like, well, you know, I see where you're going with this, you know, five husbands, all that kind of stuff, but, um, you know, we got different religious views, and you can just hear it, you know, she's probably going to go down this whole, you know, can't we just agree to disagree thing so we don't have to unfriend each other on Facebook? And, and, and Jesus just wouldn't settle for that. He wasn't going to settle for that. She's like, she's focused on mountains. So you worship on this mountain and we worship on this mountain. And you notice Jesus did. He didn't deny the fact that no, real worship is found in the Jews and real worship is on this mountain. But let me tell you what's even more important than that. Because I know a lot of Christians, they would rather always be known as right biblically than ever lead somebody into the kingdom of heaven. Those people are called seminary professors. Kind of a joke. But being known for what you know biblically is nice, but totally useless if you've never introduced somebody to the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. One exists for the other. So what Jesus does, he's like, yeah, the mountains thing, you know, we're right there, but more importantly, a time of worship is coming. It's not supposed to be about mountains. It's supposed to be about spirit and truth. It's supposed to be about the Messiah. It's not about a place. It's not about the Temple Mount. The Jews will make it about the Temple Mount in the end days. It's not about the Temple Mount. You know where the Temple Mount is? It's right here in me. It's in my heart. This is where I meet with God. He resides in me. And the reason he does that is because I am a worshiper in spirit and in truth. 
It's not possible to, it's never going to be possible for you to iron out all the religious and apologetic differences to the point where you can agree with everybody. But God can. Spirit and truth. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, this is a whole sermon unto itself, but just really quickly, God is spirit. Jesus knew the day was coming where it wasn't going to be about place. It was going to be about people who worship according to the spirit. That God himself would have to come into a person's life and physically reside in them in the form of the Holy Spirit. God is spirit. In order to enable proper worship, there must be the spirit of the living God living within us in order for us to worship God who is spirit. But he also says they must worship in truth. Jesus is truth. His word is truth. It is the necessary cornerstone. You you can be born again and be unsure of um, a lot of Old Testament truths. You can be unsure of a lot of stuff. But if you're rock solid on the fact that I'm a sinner, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He died for me in order that I might live forever and that there is no other way to heaven besides Him, that's it. God will clear up the other stuff when the Holy Spirit comes into their life. I know that Jesus is truth. He said it in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, just to get to real controversial with you this morning, there are a lot of churches, there are a lot of houses of worship, there's a lot of worship that goes on out there today where Jesus Christ is not the center of it. And God rejects that worship. Remember the first time I went into a, uh, sadly, uh, in my less informed days as a, as a young man, I was dating a girl who wanted me to go check out her Unitarian Universalist church. And it gave me the creeps to begin with, but I didn't know much about the Unitarian Universalist church until I went. And Jesus was never mentioned, but they had a table down front that had a bunch of like woodsy displays on it. You know, there were like greeneries and uh, images of animals, like woodsy animals and things like that. And people were coming down front and they were praying and they were thanking God for all the beauty that is nature and we worship you, God. It was, it was, it was, you know, it's like this pantheism, you know, God is everywhere and everything. And, and the universalist side is that it doesn't matter what you do in life, everybody is eventually going to get to heaven and that sort of stuff. So it didn't take me long. Once I left that place, I told her, you know, like, hey, this is a cult. This isn't a church. They shouldn't even call themselves a church. And, and the handwriting was on the wall for that relationship at that point in time anyway. Um, but the, The fact of the matter is that if a person says that they are worshiping God and Jesus Christ is not that God, then it's not genuine worship and they're not born again. This is why there is a mission to the Jews as well. The Jews worship God, but they do not worship the one true God because they do not worship His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Mormons are not a church because they worship a warped, distorted, horrific view of who Jesus is. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Jesus Christ is the object of our worship. He's the author of our worship. He's the enabler of our worship. He is everything. And there is no salvation apart from Him. That's the reality that this woman was confronted with. It stops Salvation stops at Christ. Last few verses here as we close, 27 to 30 in this story. Just then, you imagine, here the rabbi is, hanging out at the well in the middle of the day, talking to a prostitute by himself. He's breaking all the rules. And the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
and they went out of town and they were coming to Him. This is the woman's transition into eternal life. I, I, it shouldn't be lost on us that she left her water jar there. She made that trek to the well in the middle of the day and her existence was getting water. She was so excited by this man, she forgot what she was even living for. You know some people like that? They need to, they need to leave their jars where they're at and start living for something else. There's a lot of stuff. I have a lot of jars in my life. You do too. You have a lot of things that used to be the most important stuff to you. I love seeing people who have become quite content to throw those things down because they found something more meaningful to live for. And this is the last point today. So important. Markers leading to new life. I love to see people when they're born again. We should always emphasize that disciples make disciples. We want to lead people to Christ so that people lead other people to Christ. And it's a really healthy sign when somebody comes to Jesus and they turn around and without even being told or coerced or forced, their first inclination is, i got to tell somebody about this. i got to tell somebody what I did. I love when people are born again and... and uh, they find out, like, hey, you know, you don't have to, like, apologize for it. Hey, you know, one of the first things the Bible recommends when you give your life to Christ is you tell people about it, and, and that's what baptism is about. And people aren't like, whoa, that's a bucket of water. I just don't, I don't want to put that down. I don't want to set that down yet. Or, you know, that's, that's kind of, that could be kind of embarrassing. Or what are people going to think of me? Somebody who's been born again, they're like, get me in the water. Give me an audience and get me in the water. Scripturally speaking, it seems to be a given of those who find the Messiah. They go and they tell others who tell others. This woman told her whole entire community. How weird of a phenomenon must this have been? The sinful woman now turns around and runs back to everybody in her community and says, hey, I found the Messiah. He knew all the sinful junk I did. Right? Like, that doesn't even make sense. But when you've been delivered from it, it makes all the sense in the world. Andrew went and told Peter. Philip went and told Nathaniel. And now a sinful Samaritan woman leaves her water to go and tell her entire community. And after Pentecost, when the permanent seal of the Holy Spirit fell upon the church and resided in them, the church just explodes and communities of believers explode because people can't help but to tell other people. And it explodes in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria. And now as we are apart, it has exploded into the whole entire world. The story of salvation doesn't end with that one person. Listen, do you know how much of a change you could make in the world if you just shared Christ with one person and you led them to Jesus. Just one person. You prayed with them as they confessed their sin and they received Christ as Savior. What if that one person doesn't get over it? What if that one person tells two people and those two people each tell three people in their life? And what if those three people decide that they're going to each tell two people? And all of a sudden, you have an exponential growth. The We would call it an awakening in the United States of America. That's why... When I pull my lever on election day, that's one vote. When I lead one person to Christ, that's a potential awakening. One is way more valuable than the other. I'm happy to vote. But the bigger difference you can make in your life is to lead somebody to Christ. Tell them about Jesus. The story of salvation doesn't end with that person. It's, it's just a shift in mindset. It's now an advancement of the kingdom, which is why when we pray, we should pray as Jesus did in Luke 10.2. He said this, He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The focus of the Gospel is a kingdom of disciples who make disciples who make disciples, who start churches that start churches, that make more disciples. We're not doing that in this country anymore. 
They are in other places where they're still excited about their forgiveness in Christ. It's just exponential growth if we're just obedient to do it. We sing about the blood of Jesus and the difference that it's made in our life. And yet we avoid the woman at the well because it will make her uncomfortable and it will make us uncomfortable, not ever thinking that it could actually set her free. Let's be those people. I'm committing myself to you that I'm going to be an evangelist as I pray all of you will be too. Let's pray.